Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 374. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 374 you're listening to. My guest today is mixer, engineer, producer, Colton Lee, based out of Scottsdale, Arizona. Colton has worked with a number of people, including Shania Twain, Daughtry, Foy Vance, Ryan McMullen, and Chase Rice. He has also worked directly for former WCA guest Jakir King for six years in Nashville. We're going to talk all about that. I want to thank former WCA guest Mark Abrams from the last episode, as a matter of fact, for introducing us to Colton. Colton Lee, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about audio and fame. No, I'm not talking about the studio and I'm not talking about the movie. I'm talking about being famous. Friends, if you got into audio to get famous, I'm here to tell you, I think you got into the wrong business. It's one thing if you become famous for the work you do, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you purposely said, I'm going to become an audio engineer so I can get famous. I just think that you might want to reconsider your plans. One gets involved in audio because they have a genuine, sincere passion for it. Whether they love recording and working with bands or doing sound effects or sound design or audio restoration or working on games or movies or whatever it is you're doing, there is a passion involved there. And if your passion is to get famous, well, I just, I don't know what to say to that, except I just have to shake my head and go, "Mm, wrong. The other thing about fame is you don't have to be famous to be a professional. If you are going through a moment where you think, I'm just not as good as, you know, insert name of famous audio engineer here, don't be so hard on yourself. You know, if if your clients are happy, and you feel confident in the work you do, fame has nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter how many social media followers you have. It doesn't matter if you are on Pure Mix or Mix with the Masters. If you are doing good work and your clients are happy, friends, you are professional. Well, if you're getting paid, of course. If you're doing it for free, well, that's another story. But fame is a byproduct of doing great work with high-profile people. And my rant here today is not to take anything away from any of my famous friends at all. It's simply meant to reinforce the fact that if you are a audio professional and you're doing great work, fame is not even a factor. There are many of us, and I include myself in that, whether you consider this podcast a form of fame or not, there are many of us that not very many people know our names, except our clients. Some audio professionals may have heard of us in smaller circles, but we are not famous. And we, we do the work we do day after day because we enjoy the work. The people out there that are famous are high profile. Therefore, they influence us. They have a wider audience. But that doesn't make you any less of a professional than any of them. 
So make sure that you do a little bit of an ego check and make sure that you're in this audio business for the right reasons. We want to serve our clients. We want to do the best we can at what we do. By some chance, we work with somebody who does really well and we become famous on their coattails. Well, so be it. Then fame is there and that's a whole nother ball of wax for you to deal with. But when you get up every morning, I hope you don't say to yourself, I'm going to get famous today. I hope instead you were saying, I'm going to go out there and kick ass for my clients and do stellar work and have fun doing it. When you do that, you earn the respect of those around you and then you get hired more. And maybe by getting hired more, you get more exposure to more projects that might happen to do really well. And if fame comes your way, I am so happy for you. But if it doesn't, and you spend your life as an audio professional that not very many people know about, that is perfectly fine. You are still a professional through and through. And at the end of the day, you can lay your head down on your pillow and sleep well knowing that you did a great job. So keep your head in the game. Don't worry about getting famous and just do the best you absolutely can day after day. Show up and stay pro. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, 
and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Colton Lee here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Colton, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. This is uh, is a surprise, and I hope I live up to all the awesome (laughs) guests that you guys have had on here. (laughs) You know, everybody says that. Everybody's like, I hope I did all right. Yeah. No, no, I'm sure it's going to be great. We have to thank our mutual friend and former WCA guest, Mark Abrams, for nominating you, so to speak, recommending you. You're talking to us from Scottsdale, Arizona, and I just checked the weather. It's a nice 71 degrees there. Sure is. It's sort of the calm before the storm, as people say. Is we're like we kind of skipped winter. It's already in the 70s, and we're just gearing up for the hell that's coming. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a little town called Cave Creek, Arizona, which hmm. is probably 20 minutes north of Scottsdale. It's just like a weird little cowboy slash artist town that it's kind of in the last 10 years become like a destination for the rich to move. Hmm. But when I moved there, it was just a bunch of desert lizard people and, (laughs) you know, like a bunch of weirdos and people with horse property. What was your upbringing like with regards to your exposure to music or technology or recording or anything of that nature? Man, I feel like for a long time, I was pretty behind the eight ball as far as like technology growing up. We grew up in the sticks, basically. I lived off a dirt road. We had horses. It was kind of like my dad's side of the family is like all cowboys. And I was that kid that's like at five years old, outside, barefoot, BB gun, just come back when it's dark kind of thing. So I didn't see a computer until I was like in third grade at school and didn't really know what to do with it. It's kind of one of those things of like, oh, I have to like shut it down first before I just power it off like a monkey, you know. (laughs) But music was always around. My dad was a drummer in high school and my mom was in band in high school. They both had a deep appreciation for music. And I just from a young age can remember just gravitating to music so hard. There's video of me when I was like two or three with a fake acoustic guitar my grandfather bought me like standing on the stairs singing Garth Brooks and shit. Oh, is cursing okay? Oh, cursing's oh. cursing's encouraged. Okay, great cuz I'm going to test the limits of that one. Okay. But yeah, it's just it was one of those things that I I didn't know it, but I was just always gravitating towards music and for some reason it was always the studio side of it. It's just sort of an innate weird thing that I always wanted to work in studios. And I I don't know why. Did you play an instrument growing up? I did. When I was about 13, I picked up guitar. And me and all my buddies in school sort of started guitar around the same time. I went to like a sort of super liberal art school. Mm -hmm. And uh, on Fridays, we'd have exams until 11 and then lunch. And then the rest of the day from like 12 to 3 were electives. And one of those classes was guitar. So I picked up guitar at school with all my buddies 
I was fucking terrible at it. It was like, I was by far and away like the worst out of everybody that picked it up that day. And it just lit a fire under me. I was like fucking obsessed. And Hmm. to this day, I'm still the only one out of pretty much all those people that still play an instrument like religiously. So I just got sucked in. When did the recording aspect start to become more prominent in your life as far as a, a desire to go in that direction for real, you know, in a serious manner? Yeah, I'd say I was pretty heavily interested in it as a junior or senior in high school. Mm-hmm. I was obsessed with guitar and just like always playing guitar. That was the the only thing I really cared about. I'd get home from school, immediately go and just play along to records until it was time to start doing homework. And once I started writing my own music, I realized that my ADD does not allow for me to remember what I just wrote. And it was this constant struggle of being an illiterate musician to where I couldn't write stuff down, but I could play stuff great. And I needed a way to like capture that thought. So I made my mom drive me to Target and I bought a karaoke machine with a cassette recorder in it. And I just started fucking around with that and figured out that like, hey, if I get this closer to this part of the speaker, it sounds better. And if it's over here, it sounds weirder. And like, just sort of, you start to figure out these little things and it just, from then on, I was like, okay, I got to get GarageBand. I got to get an interface of some sort. And it just hmm. started this snowball effect. By the time I was a senior in high school is when it really bit me. It was like, I, I got to learn how to record shit for real. The karaoke machine, I'm not really clear. Why did you get her to get you a karaoke machine? Because that at the time, I didn't have a computer of my own. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of any other recording programs at the time besides GarageBand. So for it was like, okay... I can't afford a MacBook because I'm a poor high school kid, but I can afford an $80 karaoke machine that I know records to cassette. And that's really at the time, like all I cared about was just recording the idea at the moment. And then from there, it was like, oh, you can do more with this. Wow. I wish I'd gotten into something a little bit earlier, but like I said, I was kind of slow on the uptake with all the technology. (laughs) Were you working a, a, a job by the time you were in high school? I wasn't working a job in high school, but as soon as I graduated, my dad put me to work. Okay. And the next week after graduation, I was working construction. That actually was sort of like the next jump in my like recording bug was as a graduation gift, I got a MacBook and I got GarageBand and it was like fucking great, but <laughs> I didn't have an interface and all it had was that shitty like microphone that was built into the thing. So it sounded all weird. And this is like the most backwoods way of putting something together. But I was working on one of the construction sites because my dad worked construction. And as soon as I graduated, he was like, you're coming to work for me. You're going to be the grunt for the subdivision. So I was dumpster diving one day trying to fish out stuff that wasn't supposed to be in there. And I found a Yamaha desktop PA and it had just like a quarter inch input and a quarter inch output. And I sort of like did the basic dumb enough math that I knew at the moment was like, hey, if I get a 57 with a impedance converter, I can plug that into the front and then I can try to plug that into the MacBook and see if that's a way to get a cleaner audio. And for some reason it worked. And I still to this day, I don't know how I quite made that. (laughs) It was the most ridiculous recording setup ever. But that was my first interface was this thing I fished out of this shitty, it's not even an interface really. It was like my first preamp, I guess, that I plugged in directly into the MacBook. 
And then after that, it was like, oh, I can make tracks and build and overdub. And it just got sucked into it. Where did you go from there? From there, I was, at, I was, I was attending a community college because I'd been accepted to U of A and went down to Tucson for orientation. And I just got down there. and was like, I don't know what I want to do. I don't want to do this. I don't want to spend $14,000 a year to live in Tucson. No offense to Tucson, but I don't vibe with Tucson. And I didn't know what to do with the, the money. I was like, my parents were going to pay for my college and I just felt wrong wasting it because I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do. Working in an office building to me seems like a quick way to want to kill myself. You know, <laughs> like it's just, I'm not built for that. So I went to SCC, Scottsdale Community College, and I was taking the prereqs just to get the associate's degree. And one of those was a history of rock and roll music. And it was in the music department. And I'd always get there early and sort of shark past the recording studio in the hallway and just like slowly sort of walk by and, and look in. And one day a class was getting ready to start and the teacher was like, why don't you just come in, sit down? I was like, uh, okay. And I just never left. So I like sat through the whole class, immediately left there and went and talked to my advisors and was like, I want to sign up for all the recording classes. I mean, from there, it just, that was all I cared about. It's just being there for recording class. The rest of it just went by the wayside. Did you graduate? I did graduate. Yeah, I worked it out sort of randomly, just taking a bunch of classes. But like when I graduated, I think I graduated in three years there with three degrees of the associates, the associates in science for recording and then associates in science for like music business, which were all fucking useless. But <laughs> <laughs> that's another can of worms to get into. But I think it was... You had to take like recording one was one semester, recording two was another semester. You had to take electronic music, which is like learning how to use MIDI. And eventually they had it up, added a mix course and then like a advanced recording course that was on the weekends. It was like a four or five hour class, which was taught by Craig Schumacher, who I think you're familiar with. Oh, I'm very familiar with Craig Schumacher. We have known each other many, many years. Yes, that was my first internship was at Wave Lab. I met Craig through, he was an adjunct teacher there and he taught recording two and three. I just remember like him coming in and he's just sputtering out of breath, red, just on a rant about something. And I'm like, this guy's fucking crazy. I love it. This is the best class ever. And we just became friends after I graduated. And he's like, why don't you just come intern at Wave Lab? I was like, okay, sure. Oh, yeah. Craig's great. He's a character. Great mentor. Yeah. He is a tornado, a walking tornado of, of energy and uh, ideas. And mm -hmm. I'll put a link in the show notes, audience. Craig's been on the show before. Yeah. Great guy. I love his open room recording concept. That just really, there's yeah. something about that that appeals to me. It is. It's, it's just such an inviting way of making music that feels much more collaborative than I think we're used to at mm -hmm. this point where everything's so separate and sort of overdubbed and people sort of do shit on their own and then send it in now. And it's like with Craig, it's like, no, 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 no. Like we're all going to be in the room. And if you need a metronome, I'll come out and I'll stand on the floor and I'll count you in. It's this sort of, we're in this together thing, which yeah. is, it's really fun. How long did you intern for him? Is That was a while ago. So it's be hard to say, but I interned maybe three three months, maybe over the summer mm -hmm. with him. At that time, I was in a band doing the band thing and we were thinking we were going to 
make a run at it as most idiot bands think. And, uh, we were making, making our records and recording our records at home. We had a, like a Mackie, remember the Mackie Firewire consoles, the, yeah. like little 24 channels. So we had one of those that we were working on and Craig needed it. He was doing some radio series that he did every month down there in Tucson and was like, oh, I need one of those. I'll trade you a Tascam. I forget the model number. It was like a 32 channel Tascam board. I was like, I'll trade you for that. So my band took that and we started recording all of our records at our home and eventually started recording a bunch of other bands records because they heard ours and liked it. So we started really doing the band and this sort of band studio thing in the side. That's what I was doing for maybe a couple of years after I left Wave Lab. What was your takeaway from working with Craig and, and learning from him? Man, the thing with Craig is just to make a fucking decision and, and go with it. So much of, of what is taught now is get it clean. I think you and Mark talked about this on your recent podcast is you get it clean and you can make it cool later, right? Mm -hmm. With Craig, it's like, no, no, like let's make it cool now. Let's make it exciting and inspiring now. And if it's those things now, it will be later and we can maybe even make it more later, but let's get it right on the way in. Let's commit. Yeah, it's just the whole thing of commitment. And that's been a real theme pretty much my whole recording career, working with Craig and then eventually working with Jakir, Jakir King of commitment. If you're not committed, what are we doing here? Tell me about making recordings for other people and what that led to. What that led to for me was I kind of secretly knew in my heart of hearts that the band thing wasn't for me and that making records was. My recording partner was actually the singer in the band that I was in. We actually met in the recording program at Scottsdale Community College and then formed a band. He and the other members of the band were much more committed to making the band work. And I was like, yeah, this is fun. I'm here for the ride, but secretly I want to make records and the more bands I can get in here record, the better. At the same time, I was working at a coffee shop in Cave Creek, my hometown. One day I was there at work and the owner of the local guitar store there came in and we were talking because I was always in there. He's like, hey, you know, there's a recording studio up the street, right? You should go talk to them. I was like, oh man, I didn't know we had a recording studio in Cape Creek. It's such a small little town. Why the hell would there be a studio here? But yeah, so I got off my shift and went straight to that studio, knocked on the door and nobody answered. And I knocked on the door again, nobody answered. So I called the number on that door and this older gentleman answered and he's like, I'm on my way back to the studio, just hang out and we can talk. And he offered me an internship on the spot, which looking back was a little crazy because we literally just met. And the studio was a fucking disaster to like put it frankly. It was in like a little industrial building that shared a wall with like a pool guy, ran his office out of there. And there was papers everywhere, mic cables not wrapped. There was some dog shit on the floor in the corner. It's like, what am I getting into? But hey, it's a studio and he's going to pay me $10 an hour instead of just a free wow. like, internship. So hell yeah, I'm in. I spent like the first week just cleaning, cataloging and storing session notes that I don't know why they even took them because they were just thrown all over. But I spent like a week cleaning and, and getting stuff together. And then uh, my second week there, he goes, hey, I have a session coming in tomorrow. There's some kids that want to make, make a record. 
So I want you to, to help me out. I'm like, awesome. Super excited. I'd never worked in the room yet. They had like a Trident 24 and some ADAT HD 24s. They had two of those. So it was like stuff I'd never even used. I'd used only Pro Tools to that point. So we get it, we get the band in the next day and get everything going. They're out there like rehearsing the first song and he looks at his watch and he goes, okay, it's two o'clock. I'm going to the dog park. Good luck. And he just left. <laughs> I was like, fuck. Okay. Well, I guess we'll, we can figure this out. And I knew enough to stop and play the recording and put the right tracks into red. And uh, I guess I'll figure it out. And that was pretty much my whole relationship working at that studio was just fucking figure it out, man. Wow. So yeah. it really wasn't an internship. It was like you were a paid assistant and uh, essentially a first engineer, really. Yeah. I mean, being shoved into, quote, first engineer the second week with no working knowledge of the studio was fun. But I grew to love that place and love Kip, the guy that ran it. It was all fun for him. He was a session musician back in the day. He worked at Sun, played on some old Dave and Alan Coe records. He's just an old hippie musician that went on to make millions of dollars in data management. He sold something to Pepsi, made a lot of money. And then at 65, decided he was going to just open a studio for fun. And I got to benefit off of that because I got to basically run the place did you keep your other job? I did for a little bit. Once I was at the point where I was like, man, I think I can do this full time and probably be okay. Because he, he literally just said, you get carte blanche, man. Whatever you want to do, just bring in bands, whatever. We'll work it out. And I was like, okay. So I quit the coffee shop job and was just working at the studio pretty much. You learned quite a bit there, I would imagine. I did. Yeah, I learned a lot about mostly like time management and how not to do things. But yeah, I learned quite a bit. What I mostly learned was just how to think on your feet and just go because half the time shit didn't work there or something would break. And now there's a band out on the floor waiting for you to record. And now this thing just stopped working. So what do we do? Let's find a workaround. Let's get going. Or he would always paint me into these corners of like, Hey, so I ran into this guy at the dog park. He's the band teacher for Cactus Shadows High School. And uh, they're, they're coming in in two days to make a recording. Okay, cool. How many people? He's like, 20. We don't have enough headphones for that. It's like, well, we'll figure it out. Okay. And it's just, that was the kind of shit that would happen. We're like, okay, in two days, there's going to be a literal busload of kids showing up and we got to make it work. And we did. We always made it work, but it was it was always, how are we going to make this work, if that makes <laughs> sense? <laughs> how long was that gig? How long did you stay there? I stayed there for about four years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Four years doing that. And then I just got to the point where I was like, man, I'm not growing. I grew the business to the point where I built us a website. I got us a logo designed. I did all the sort of marketing things. I did all the scheduling. We were booked for a couple months straight and it was great. But at the same time, I'm like, man, I'm the top guy here, if that makes sense. I don't have anybody else to learn from. I think this was right around the time of the last tape op conference in Tucson. Mm -hmm. This was when Craig had 
John McBride on as like the keynote speaker. Oh yeah, I remember that. It was like right around that time and John was talking about his studio, Blackbird, and how they were going to start this academy. And that sort of planted this seed to me of, ah, maybe I should go back to school. I didn't want to do the conservatory thing here in Arizona because I know enough kids that came out of there that were dipshits and didn't know anything. And it just sort of put this like bad taste in my mouth towards it, which looking back now, that's just silly because with any recording school, it's like whatever work you want to put into it, you're going to get out, right? Right. Like Mark Mark Abrams was talking about. Yeah. And that's the case with literally any any recording school. So I want to make that point clear that that was just my own personal prejudice to it. But the Blackbird Academy seemed appealing to me because I love Nashville and I had this thought of, well, you know, if you really want to make a run at this and you really want to be good and be one of the best at this, you got to go compete with the best and learn from the best. So I applied to Blackbird, got in, and my then girlfriend, now wife, and I moved across the country. Hmm. We just decided, well, I'm going to do this. So let's go. And thank God she was totally into it. And we left for Nashville with no plan, actually. Thinking back on it, it's fucking crazy. All I had been was accepted. I didn't know, A, how I was going to pay for it. I didn't have enough money to pay for Blackbird. And at the time, I don't know if they still are, but they're not an accredited school. So you can't get federal funding. So you could, you can't go get like a traditional school loan. You have to go through private. So it's a much bigger undertaking. But that didn't matter to me. I was like, fuck it. We're just going to get out there and figure it out. What does it cost to go there? I think it's around 25, 25 grand. Okay. And how long is that program? Eight months. Mm. Yeah, I think. I wouldn't know. I never ended up going. Oh, you never ended up going. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Well, let me let you talk. Go. So we got out to Nashville and my semester started in July and we got there in January. So we had some time to get settled. Maybe I'd find a job just to like get me through. I started looking for jobs and I was like, man, maybe I do a, like an internship or I don't know. I was just floating around trying to figure out what I was going to do. And we have a mutual friend that lives in Nashville that knew Jakir King. And that was never on my radar. I'm not one of those people that tries to really cash in on other people's relationships. Mm-hmm. I knew that they knew Jakir, but I was never going to ask for an introduction or anything like that. But one of the kids found out that I knew who he was and they were so excited that they knew him and that they could facilitate an introduction that he ran up to Jakir one day and asked for his email for me. And I was mortified because I was like, oh man, now I have to email him. Oh, this is the kid of the person that you know. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm a little all over right now. I'm super caffeinated. Yeah. So our mutual friend's son knew Jakir because he was friend with Jakir's son. Got his email and I was like, shit, now I have to email him because if I don't, I look like an idiot. So I reached out and was just like, hey, I'm new to town. I plan on attending the Blackbird Academy in July. I know you work at Blackbird. What do you think? Is that the best path forward? for taking the next step in my career? Or should I just say, essentially, fuck it and start knocking on studio doors and try to get an internship? What do you think would be the best path forward, basically? And he was kind enough to email me back and say, you know, I'm wrapping up a record in the next couple of days. Why don't we meet for breakfast? I was like, okay, cool. So we met for breakfast. We talked, we hit it off. You've met Jakir. He's one of the nicest people ever. Yeah. He was like, well, have you ever seen Blackbird before? I was like, ah, I've seen pictures and stuff. And I did a a short little tour. He's like, well, why don't you come by 
on Monday. This is a Saturday. And I went to see him and he just offered me an internship on the spot. And I, of course, said yes. And just so I'm clear, he maintains a smaller room over there. Is that correct? He did at the time. He did at the time. And then he had that booked out. Did he have the studio in Franklin at that moment? No. Oh, okay. This is going back a ways. This is back a ways. Yeah, this is probably seven years ago. Okay. This was 2014. So in 2014, he was still operating completely out of what is Studio G at Blackbird. Gotcha. So he offered me an internship and I was like, of course, yeah, sign me up. And he just handed me a stack of papers and was like, these are charts for a session that I have tomorrow. Go through them on the desktop. There's the songs that they correspond to. Make sure that the charts are right. And he just left. I was like, all right, I guess I'm starting now. So I just went over and started listening and picked up a guitar and made sure the charts were right and never left. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So let's take some time here. Let's talk about your time with Shakir. I want to know about the things you learned, your interactions, and and what the major takeaways from that time was. How long do we have? (laughs) Well, you'll have to encapsulate it because, you know, the show can only go for so long. Yeah. I mean, I'm still unpacking the stuff I've learned from Shakir, but I think the biggest takeaways are just show up every day. Show up and work hard. Say yes until people stop asking you to do things. I mean, that was pretty much my attitude the whole time in Nashville was just keep showing up until they tell you not to. And luckily, nobody did. But with Jakir's, I had experience. Like I said, I worked at a studio for four years in Arizona before getting to Nashville and working for Jakir. But I didn't know shit when I really got down to it. And you start making real records with real artists and real engineers I mean, I felt like I'd been dropped on a different planet. 
my whole world got turned upside down. Can you give me some examples of things you didn't know? This sounds silly now to even say it out loud, but just basic session documentation. Working in the studio I worked at in, in Arizona, they didn't document anything. It was not even a thought. It was just run and gun, and then it's done. But with Jakir, everything is meticulous. We are meticulously documenting every piece, serial numbers on certain things, and pictures, paper, backup. It's a very regimented process. One that I sort of helped define for him in the later years, but I had no idea about until one day, my first or second weekend, the engineer pulled all the patches out of the patch bay to do something else. And Jakir went, did you document that? And I was like, uh, no, was I supposed to? And he's like, yes, fuck, wow. you know, like, <laughs> well, that's gone. Just little things, the things that make you a professional. Unplug headphones when they're not in use or there's an overdub going on in the room. Go out in the room and unplug headphones. All the little things that make being a pro being a pro. In the context of a session that is rolling, taking notes, taking legible notes, we'll say. <laughs> yes, there's and, that. And staying organized with those notes. There's really an art to that. Can you just talk about what your strategy was? Did, did Jakir give yeah. you guidance as to this is how I want this? Or did he just say, I need you to document everything, period? He didn't give me guidance as far as specifics, but he did say, this is what is expected of you. You're expected to be able to recall a sound within a reasonable degree of margin. He didn't particularly care how you did it as long as it was efficient and worked. So the engineer that we were working with at the time, I started out as the intern and then sort of the assistant, whatever, and worked my way through the whole system. But the engineer that we were working with, he only wanted paper documentation and was very sketchy about taking pictures, which eventually bit me in the ass. But my strategy would always be day one, if we have pedal boards, I would make a pedal board on my computer, make a, a graphical layout of each person's pedal board and what pedals were on there. And I'd print a bunch of them out. And then same thing with the amps. I would make a facsimile of the amp on later. We started using Photoshop and stuff, but basic blocks with knobs and write down the date, the song, the player, the amp, mark all the settings. And then same thing for all the pedals, write down the record chain path, what mics were used, what preamps those went into, were they summed, were they individually bust, what they were summed through, all the way from amp to Pro Tools, essentially. Really, there's a, an amount of speed involved in doing that. Yes. In the speed at which you document that, because things are moving and it's very easy to get in people's way. You know, there's mm -hmm. a player with their pedal board and you're like hovering, trying to Hey, can I get to your pedal board? Yeah. What did you do to, to make sure that you captured the immense amount of information per song that was occurring? My strategy was have everything prepped, everything printed out. If we would throw a wildcard pedal in or whatever, I just draw it or just write down the settings on the side. But Shakir likes to work in a way where everyone's out on the floor at the same time. The band's playing and we're going for band takes with fixes later it's not so much super parted out. So if we do six takes and take a break to listen, as soon as the band's off the floor, I'm out the door and into the live room and document, document. They're going to be listening for the next 15, 20 minutes. I got that amount of time to document all the pedals, the guitars that are used, drums, 
amps, everything. Symbols, it's all-encompassing. And it just goes quick as possible. Did you try to use your cell phone and just capturing pictures and video a lot to, to yeah. get you there faster? Eventually I did. And in fact, I was doing both, which you would think would slow me down. But I think I just got to the point where I could do both just as quickly, get the pictures and the paper docs done. Because like I said, the engineer was kind of weird about pictures and wanted paper docs only. And then, like I said, we got into a situation where I missed something and we didn't have a picture and we didn't have paper docs and I got filleted in front of the whole band and I never wanted that to happen again. So I decided I don't give a shit what the engineer says. I'm taking pictures of everything because I don't want to get fired. So that's when I started doing everything, pictures, paper. It's all just almost a self-preservation thing, <laughs> you know? Right. I don't know about you, but in my experience, not only as an engineer, but as a player as well, mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen people take such intense documentation like that. I mean, it's, yes, documentation on the board and the outboard and, mm -hmm. you know, everything involved on, on the studio side, but I don't think I've ever witnessed, I've never done it, and I've never seen another producer engineer that I've worked with do it either, where you're documenting the pedal board settings. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's unique to Jakir? And I don't want you to speak for Jakir, but I mean, based on your experience, is that normal? I would say it's pretty unique to us and Jakir and the system that we arrived at. It was a pretty common theme with most artists that would come through that we were like, man, you guys are so efficient and so thorough. And somebody called us sort of like the green berets of audio engineers because it was, it was so yeah. systematized and... I would think of us as like, we're assassins. We're, we go in, we get the shit done, and you don't even realize it's been done. That's how it's always been. Well, not when I started, but that's where I got to because I got roasted enough times where I was like, you know what, fuck this feeling like I haven't done enough. So I'm going to do, whenever I feel like I've done enough, five to 10% more. That's when it's enough. So I always tell young engineers, you have to anticipate the next move and be there mentally already. So like, if Jakir and the engineer were talking about, oh, you know, we need to do this guitar overdub next. I know that that engineer likes an API and a distressor and then an API EQ, maybe a 560 after. I can get that shit ready now. They're talking about it. I'll go patch that up. So 15 minutes later after they're done talking, they're like, all right, I think we need to do a guitar overdub. Give us a minute. We'll get it set up. We're like, no, no, we're already ready to go. Let's go. And it's boom. Interesting. So when Jakir said, this is what is expected of you, could you lay out what he said roughly? I know that was many years ago, but. Yeah. I mean, Jakir has extremely high standards for himself mm -hmm. and does not like making mistakes. And he holds everybody else in the session to a similar standard. And I, to be quite honest, was not even close to the standard I needed to be when I first got there. So he would lay it out like, hey, when you vacuumed earlier, you didn't get this thing. There's some fuzz over here. Little things of like, if you can't take the time to be detailed about this, are you going to be detailed about the audio stuff later? You know, and it's it seems mm -hmm. nitpicky. And in the time, I'm like, fuck, man, can I catch a break here? Like, is everything on the table? And I look back and I'm like, I'm so glad that it was like that because it made me so much better at my job that people are always surprised by the efficiency of things. And it's because... 
he would say, I expect you to have everything ready. I expect it to be clean. I expect it to be professional at all times. That's really what the expectation is, is for things to be professional. I want to have Jakir back on the show just so I can dig deeper and find out where that emanates from for him. And I mean, it really is fascinating because when you learn to operate at a high level, at a professional level, Mm -hmm. and then you go anywhere else and it's not like that, it's a little weird. You're like, huh, this is not quite up to my standards and it can be frustrating. So please continue. Please expand on some of these other things that you all were doing to make these sessions not only run smoothly, but run so that the musicians didn't feel uncomfortable because you all were trying to tackle all of this. I would say it took me a while to sort of find my role in it all because, like I said, Jakir at the time had an engineer that was the chief engineer, and I was sort of the intern assistant slash editor slash catch-all guy. That can be tough to figure out where your role is. If Jakir's obviously the top and he's the person that everyone defers to, and then the engineer's managing all the really important big sound stuff. And for me to fit in and try to not disrupt the flow of things, you kind of have to figure out the best way. And I found personally that it was my personality of I can get in and chop it up with the band. I speak band. I was in bands forever. And just becoming a part of the group in a sense of it's just being a good hang while also being good at your job. So I could get in and like talk to them and put them at ease while I'm taking pictures. You just lull them into this sense of it's just part of the deal. It's not a big deal. It's not like, don't touch that. I have to take a picture. It's just, this is what we do. This is part of the the session and don't think too much about it, I guess. Yeah. And there's a fine line there because you don't want to start engaging in a conversation that starts to derail the session. And then Jakir is all, you know, looking over his shoulder going, what's going on? Oh, yes. Colton's in there, like shooting the shit with the band and slowing the whole thing down. Right. That's the thing. You have to find that fine line and you got to know the edges because if you cross that line, well, you are not getting invited back. You can make the smallest little comment that you think is offhand and just whoop, and it'll throw somebody into a tailspin. You really have to pick and choose and you have to know yourself, honestly, know that like, hey, I'm easily sucked into conversations. Maybe I don't engage with this one. It's just such a learning process. I think you and Mark talked about on your previous podcast. It's all about hours in the chair. Mm -hmm. And it's just all about experience, honestly. I don't know how else to put it other than just figuring it out in the moment. So how long did you stay with Jakir in that role? As an assistant, I was probably his assistant for another three years and then for another two to three years as his engineering and mixing partner. Yeah. And then in 2020, my wife and I sold our place in Nashville and moved back to Phoenix. So I was with Jakir from 2014 to 2020. Wow. That's a good run. Yeah. Let me ask you a practical question. Were you surviving financially? Yes and no. There were great years and then there were shit years. And I'm never shy about saying that I've often worked multiple jobs to make it work. I worked at Home Depot slinging mulch for a year and a half while I was interning for Jakir because I wasn't making any money. Right, because you're interning. Yeah. And then after that, I had a little bit of a Starbucks stopgap while I was being paid for gigs, but not enough. And then 
I'd say the last four years, I was full-time music. I would pick up odd jobs here and there, mostly just to kind of fill in during like holiday or tax season, but also just to have some variety. I taught boxing for a couple months for a friend that had a boxing business and stuff. So I've always had little side gigs, but this is always what I consider my career, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I would assume that Jakir is not working like all the time. Right. So you had to fill in those spots. Yeah. You have to fill in the spots. And if you're not able to drum up your own business as you want, then yeah, you gotta, you gotta make it work. What business advice did you learn from Jakir? Always ask for the most you think you can get. Jakir is always asking for what he deserves, if that makes sense. Right. And most people don't in this business. I feel like it's sort of the way it's built, the way we're sort of indoctrinated into the flow of being an engineer of like, you're an intern and you get treated like shit. If you're lucky, you get treated well, but most big studios, you kind of get treated like shit. You work overnights, you work for free, you clean toilets. If you're lucky, you get put on a session and that's just the way it is. And then you get out of that studio and then you have to, again, kind of work for free if you want to get gigs right out of the gate because you don't have a name or you're charging not enough. So we're all kind of chronically underpaid in some ways. Mm -hmm. And for Jakir, it was like, no, no, you should be asking for this much. And he would always tell me, you're not charging enough. You need to charge this. And if they don't want to pay it, then don't do it. And that was always such a struggle for me because I'd be so excited to just get the gig, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes to make it work. And then you're like, man, I didn't make any fucking money on this because they were a nightmare to deal with. And there was 14 recalls and it took forever and I shouldn't have done it. But if I'd listened to Jakir, I would have been better off. And right. it, takes, it takes a while to learn those things, you know, especially in the real world. Why did you decide to leave Nashville and come back to Arizona? Why not just stay in Nashville? Kind of a number of things. Number one, my wife and I's family is all here in Phoenix. And to be perfectly honest, Jakir and I's working relationship was starting to come to like a natural end. Jakir was starting to want to engineer more of his own stuff and mm -hmm. mix his own stuff. And I was doing a lot of mixing of my own and was increasingly less available for stuff. So it didn't feel like leaving the Jakir umbrella was going to financially ruined me. It felt like the right move at the right time. It's like that too, isn't it? With relationships like that, you work, you learn, you go through the different growing pains together. Yeah. You get to a flow and eventually it kind of is like, all right, it's time to leave the nest. Yeah. And that's what it felt like for me. It didn't really ever really bother me, but people thought I was Jakir's nephew for a long time in Nashville. They're like, oh, it's his nephew. I'm like, I'm not even fucking related to the guy. Like... <laughs> Is that the only way you think I can get this fucking job? Wow. So in a way, it was kind of like, I felt like I needed to stand on my own. And look, I put in the shitty 18-hour days, sleep on the couch for two hours, be up and ready for the session at seven. I've put in all that work. So I need to go and stand on my own. And if I'm going to fail, then I'll fucking fail on my own. But at least I did it. And Jakir was so supportive of that. He was mostly just sad I was leaving. Yeah. And uh, I mean, we're still super close. I call him for any advice. We talk 
maybe once a month on the phone. He just had me back for a session two weeks ago. His engineer got sick and was like in crisis mode, like, fuck, the session starts tomorrow. I don't have an engineer. Can you come out? Yeah, I'll be there. So the session documentation and all the intern duties or activities that you would do for him, what about engineering? Is there a different approach there? Yeah, I would say by the time I was was engineering, I had brought up an intern to take on the documentation. So that part is no longer in the brain of now the intern knows his responsibility and he is going to take care of all the documentation. But yeah, I would say that engineering for Jakir, I had to sort of split my brain a little bit because we have different approaches as far as engineering and mixing goes. And I think that that's what makes us work great as a team, but it's not always what he wants to hear recording wise. He has a very specific taste and likes to do things a certain way. So it was always kind of me trying to find that line of what would Jakir do in this situation that's going to make him happy, but what's also going to be gratifying artistically for me mm-hmm. and like sort of true to myself. To be perfectly frank, I don't know that I always found that line. Maybe some things could have been better, but that was sort of my approach with working with Jakir was I know what makes him happy. And ultimately what's going to make him happy is going to make everybody else happy. So don't fight the process. It's like, I'm not hired to impose my own ego and will on this session. I'm hired to be another part of the lens that's focusing this project to what it needs to be, right? That's true. He is the producer and you are the engineer who's trying to satisfy what the producer's vision is. Yes. And I think taking that into account and being like, if the producer's happy, we're good. Because if the producer's happy, the artist is should be happy, you hope, if he's a good producer. And then you have some job security. I mean, there's not that much job security in this world, but yeah. if, if you're able to keep the producer happy and you're able to still find satisfaction in the work, then it's a win-win. I want to just touch on one other thing, and then I'd like to refocus about your time now back in Arizona. But what did you learn about interacting with high-profile artists? You've worked with Daughtry, Shania Twain, and many others. So can you talk a little bit about that, about your demeanor, behavior around artists that you're kind of like, oh, shit, that's so-and-so. Yeah, it's weird. I'm not one of those super extroverted people that is really great at meeting people. My approach is always just, I'm more of a slow burn. I always start quiet and respectful and sort of read the temperature of the room and you can kind of figure out what they're okay with, if that makes sense. So for instance, meeting Chris Daughtry, I was kind of nervous because he was one of the first really higher profile people we'd ever worked with. And, you know, I was a fan of his in the early, early years. He's such a phenomenal singer. He came in and immediately he's just like cracking jokes, shaking everybody's hand and really personable. So that relationship just started off really organically. It's just like a buddy, but that's not how it always is. And you can't just jump right into being buddies with everybody because then you can overwhelm some people. But Chris and I just hit it off immediately and we're still friends. We don't work together anymore, but we send each other stupid memes all the time. And it's because we just hit it off. Mm -hmm. But with Shania, that was a much bigger thing because it's like, fuck, I remember where I was the first time I heard the first Shania Twain song that hit the radio. Like I remember where I was because it was so impactful and such a cultural shift because 
I grew up listening to country music. So when that came on, I was like, what the fuck is this? Electronic drums in, in a country song? Mm-hmm. Why does it sound like Def Leppard? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. Yeah. Mutt Lang. And it was one of those things of just, it's like any relationship, like dating relationship. You kind of just have to go slow and figure out where people's boundaries are and what they're comfortable with. Shania or Eileen, as her real name is, she's just a normal person. Right. At the end of the day, she's a mom. She's just a normal lady that's just doing the thing. She's a fucking talented artist one of the most talented and it is weird to be sitting in a room with somebody that has the amount of money that can just snap and change everybody's life in the room if they so chose to that's a weird thing to wrap your brain around but they're just people they're just normal people don't overdo it you just have to approach it like any other relationship of just getting to know somebody and let them get to know you if they're not interested in you and they're not asking you questions every once in a while then don't engage I've worked with some bigger artists that they don't ask anything about you. They'll say hi when you get to the studio and that's it. And that's where you leave it. You're essentially like a Lyft driver or an Uber driver. Exactly. It's all customer service, man. This whole job is just a customer service job wrapped in plugging shit in and being nerdy about dumb stuff that no one else gives a shit about. But it's just customer service. And if somebody doesn't want to interact or they want to be super professional and only ask you something when they need something or they have a question about a piece of gear or a song, then that's all you give them. You know, you be polite and you're courteous, but you don't need to like jump in and try to make a joke or interject your own stuff into the conversation because it makes people uncomfortable. I'd like to refocus a little bit if we could and wrap up our interview on you in Arizona. So you and your wife leave Nashville in 2020, you sell your place, you come back home. Give me the broad view of what's been going on. What did you do to get reestablished and what are you doing now? It's been a wild two years like everybody else. When we moved back, we didn't have a place to live. So we moved in with my wife's sister and her husband and they're at the time two and a half year old, which was great. I was so grateful that we had a place to land, but I also had a bunch of mixed work that was coming in and I didn't have a place to work. So I was working on headphones in the kitchen and having my nephew come up and try to talk to me in the middle of stuff. And it was just a lot, right? So I found a little studio apartment my buddy owned and was renting out and I moved everything there. And I was going to like, oh, I'm going to turn this into a studio. I'll mix, mostly mix, because that's what I want to do is mostly mix, but I can track stuff here. It's a fine enough space. And then a couple months later, the landlord got a dog and that dog fucking hated me and (laughs) almost attacked me about, I don't know, 20 or so times. And I'm like, fuck, I can't stay here. The dog wants to kill me. I can't bring clients here. I'm just going to have to move. So my wife and I found this new place to rent, which I'm in now. And I just mix out of here. As far as getting reestablished, luckily I've been working towards just being a mix engineer for the last four, five years. Outside of doing stuff for Jakir, I was only pursuing mix work and it's just kept growing organically. I don't really promote it. Well, I really should, but it's right now it's all just word of mouth from previous clients. And that's where I'm at now. It's just mostly mixing. I just mix out of my own home, which is fucking great. 
Yeah, isn't it? I love it. It's the best. <laughs> Absolutely I mean. love it. Can't go back to the other way. No. Well, that's great. So is there any part of you that any kind of identity crisis about leaving Nashville and coming back to Arizona? Oh, absolutely. I loved Nashville and where we were at. Did you visit Jakir's studio? I did. I went I went to Franklin and we met up for coffee first and then we went over to the to the studio slash house in Franklin yeah. and uh, hung out and had our interview, which obviously audience, I'm gonna put a link to the Jakir interview in the show notes. Yeah. So we lived 10 minutes from his studio. Mm -hmm. I just loved where we lived and I loved Nashville apart from just the music aspect of it. But there's, there's definitely a part of me that's like, fuck man, did you just like sink your career leaving what is arguably sort of the epicenter of recorded music? But there's also that part of me that's like sort of the punk part that's like, fuck that. I don't need that place to make it or be successful especially nowadays. I've always kind of done my own thing anyways. So just fucking commit and go. It's yeah. very much like recording of just like, fuck it, I'm here. I'm going to make it work. So I have to ask, all those things that we talked about, about documentation, do yeah. you do that in your sessions now? I do to an extent. I okay. don't do it to the same extent for Jakir, but I do. Like a lot of the same practices that I learned with Jakir, I put into practice every single day. I don't do as much recording here in Phoenix, so it doesn't really come into play. And when I do, I'm all in the box. I run an Apollo 8P and I record in Luna. So everything's documented and it's in there. So I take pictures of where mics are and stuff and I'm still pretty thorough, but I don't have to be as thorough anymore because I don't use any outboard mm. gear. Fantastic. Now, since coming back to Arizona, have you reconnected with Craig? Do you plan on doing any tracking over at WaveLab in the future? Yeah, I've actually done two or three sessions down there, not as an engineer, but as a session musician, mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun to just sort of get to be on the other side of the glass that doesn't exist, I guess, down there because there's no control room. <laughs> but The other side of the room. Yeah, it's, it's, he's rearranged that place like three or four times the last year. So it's like every time I go in there, the control room's in a different fucking spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've reconnected and, you know, I spent some time when I was down there, I stayed at the house with him and Karen. So it was, it was great to hang out. And, you know, there's a time where he was thinking, maybe you come and engineer down here and maybe look at taking over some more day-to-day -day stuff. And I'm just, just didn't feel like it was the right move for me mm -hmm. as far as our approaches to recording even though I, I came up under Craig, I'm much more of a modern feel for things and really embracing a lot of the new digital stuff. Whereas in recent years, Craig's like, fuck that. I'm not a fader monkey. We're just going to go to like tape. And, and I love that. But that's not where I do my best work. Mm -hmm. So I just decided to stay on my own path. Yeah. You mentioned the Apollo 8P and Luna. Yeah. Just just a slightly different, very modern way of doing things these days. You know, I see yeah. Butch Walker seems to be embracing that quite a bit. Obviously, Jakir has, has been embracing that. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. The last session I was down there doing was all Luna, all Apollos. Yeah. It's an economical way to do things, and it's a very efficient way to do things. It's not everybody's cup of tea. I get it. It sounded great. I'll tell you that. It sounded fucking awesome. So, yeah. Yeah, and it really does. I, I was sort of on the front end of that with Jakir when Universal Audio was developing it. Jakir did that recording for Cass McCombs out at United. Mm -hmm. I was there for that. They just cut you out of all of it. But we were sort of the first 
test pilots to use Luna and like put it through its paces and, and give them notes and stuff. So I have a deep appreciation for what it can do and all the improvements they've added to it. Yeah. So audience, you can check out more about Colton at his website, which is coltonlee.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. You can peruse the website. I'm really happy that Mark connected us. I look forward to meeting you in person in the future. It's a small recording world, so I'm sure yes. we're going to run into each other. Did we ever meet at a Potluck Audio Conference? It would seem that the chances of that would be pretty high. Yeah, we must have crossed paths. We may have. We may have. I mean, I've been at just about every Potluck since 2007. Well, then we probably have because Had to have. I was at every single one of those things except one, one year. And yeah. um, well, I hope our paths cross again, Colton. It's a Me pleasure too, to man. have you on and I appreciate your time today. So once again, audience, coltonlee.com. Check it out. Colton, thank you so much. Thank you, man. It was a pleasure. Take care. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Colton Lee here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, there's a guest suggestion form over at workingclassaudio.com. There's also a contact form that you can fill out if you need to reach me for any particular reason. You can always, of course, email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com, and let me know what's on your mind. I'd be happy to hear from you. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical voice of Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And of course, as usual, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.